1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the company of gentlemen golfers who played of Leith, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers who play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skilful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Hello and welcome back to another Silver Club podcast. I hope you enjoyed part one with the legendary coach Bob Tosky. Very recently, we're going to get to part two with Bob, where Bob's going to talk about watching Ben Hogan practice, who gave him the nickname The Mouse, and seeing Brooks Kepka as a college player and talking about some of his premonitions about Kepka's major success way back when Kepka was in college. But before we do that, just wanted to touch base with all of our Silver Club podcast listeners and just give you a little update. This is the time of year where all of us golf professionals, well, at least most of us, we make the pilgrimage down to the Orlando area for the wonderful PGA show, a great place to network and just chat with our fellow professionals and industry leaders from all around the country, from some great manufacturers in apparel and equipment to anyone who's a golf professional assistant and head professional, directors of instruction, Uh, Just some great meeting room forums and a lot of great things that happened down in Orlando during the PGA show. So very, very excited. I am uh, in Gainesville, Florida right now, where recently I spent a little time with the Florida Gators golf team, my alma mater from Gulp over 20 years ago. And it was really cool to touch base with the young stars of the game, including the up-and-coming Fifth-ranked amateur in the world, Ricky Castillo and J.C. Deacon leads that Florida Gators team. And very cool to spend some time, teed it up with the players, got to chat with them a little bit. ton of fun reconnecting with the great Gator team. We had some great times back then, and man, it's gone by way too fast. And on my way after the time in Gainesville... Uh, spent a little time with three Silver Club members at the wonderful Stream Song Invitational. We had a fantastic event, three-round event, plus a practice round. So we play we play all three golf courses, and we played one of them twice, the red twice. And the three golf courses down there at Stream Song are just outrageously good. The wind is always up, although we, uh, we managed to skip the wind a little bit on our first round of competition. It's a two-best-ball competition that we played. It took... It was myself, our current captain of the golf, Lawrence Largent from Tennessee. We had Mike McCool from Virginia. And then we also had Derby David from Texas. And uh, just spectacular time down there. We, our team played fantastic. We shot 14 under the first day on the black, which really propelled us to a 30 under par finish. Again, two best balls. They did a gross and a net division. On the gross side of things, we played great. Over 60 teams involved in this one. This was, uh, I, I beg anybody to find a better pro-am in the world. Stream Song does it right from their caddy program to the culinary side of things. Director of golf, Scott Wilson, and his team just do a spectacular job 
down there at Stream Song and just had a, a fantastic time with our Silver Club members. We love to compete. We love to get out there. Uh, we like to walk the walk and talk the talk, and it was really fun to take home the title this year. So uh, kudos to our our team for uh, getting the job done. Before we get to part two with Bob Toski, though, I just wanted to talk to you about a quick promotion that we're doing. You can check it out on our website, silverclubgs.com. We are honoring the greatest club champions of all time anywhere on the planet. So if you're a listener of this podcast or you want to pass this along to one of your friends who's at a club or anybody can nominate anybody, you know, we all have been in locker rooms. We've looked up at those honor boards and we've seen the names of players listed five, 10, even 20 times on occasion. Have you ever wondered what the story is behind some of those names? We certainly have, and we think we've come up with a great way to tell that story. We want to honor all the greatest club champions from clubs all across the country, not just for their accomplishments, but for their legacies at their home clubs. And we need your help. Nominate someone for the greatest club champion by filling out the form on our website. Next, you can follow our feature pieces throughout the month of February, and we're going to post things online. We want all the golfing world to know about all these greatest club champions out there because there's a lot of wonderful stories behind the stories. Then in March, you're going to have the chance to vote for your choice of the greatest club champion out there based on all of our features. The top 25 of these will be announced before the Masters with the top three champions and submitters receiving prizes. So Colin and I talked briefly about this. Let's have a listen real quick. Steve, I think this is very cool. The, the, uh, nominate your club's greatest champion. You know, I, like many of us, I love when I go to an old club, I, I love to check out the old artwork and the, and I'm, I'm always trying to sort of, uh, sneak around, you know, be a sleuth and see what's, see how they decorate their clubhouse and what, and one of the, among the many things, I love the honor boards. And I always get a kick out of someone who went on some type of tear in the, over 21 years, they won 11 times or they won 20 times in 30 years and male or female. I always love popping into the clubhouse at Shinnecock, you know, after the ninth green as you're waiting to, to tee off on 10. And there's, uh, there's, there's a lady who I think she wanted something like 20 out of 22 years and, yeah, and she good. was that's runner pretty- up. And, and so, uh, this is, this is an opportunity to, uh, nominate and celebrate, uh, people like, People like my friend Tom Graham, who's 20-time club champion at the Country Club of Fairfield, and and they're all going to have an interesting story from the first time they won it when sometimes they were a teenager or right out of college, and and how they sort of were they had their eras of dominance, and then they somehow I love when they had that sort of reprise win late, in, you know, when they're 50 and they beat someone 30 years younger than them, and there's every great club has got that person, male or female, who did it, and. And let's put a spotlight on those sort of those great achievements. Yeah, that's going to be a, a really neat social media campaign that is out right now. Uh, check out our sites at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter, and all over Facebook as well. But that'll be great, and we're going to track we're going to track them down and try to get some sort of impressions and recollections from their years. And uh, you know, uh, you have to you have to admire those people where. There wasn't much in the way of recognition, just a, you know, a club championship, but you know how much it mattered to them. Any, anyone competing in it. And, and that's something I liken to sort of, 
uh, Ivy League golf and how I feel like my players, they, they play their hearts out. They put it all on the line and it's not exactly getting time on ESPN and sports center. And, and yet, um, some, as long as it matters to them. And it's so just that's, one of those personal accomplishments, yeah. right? The, the ability to not only put your name in, in a historical context at your home club that you're so proud to represent. And obviously some of these, these great, great clubs around the country. Uh, it's, it's, it means even more. Obviously, if you win a club championship at a winged foot where there's all these plus handicaps, it's certainly, uh, you know, if you win one time there, it's probably as much or more than if you win 10 times, maybe another, but it's, it's, right. it's an equally amazing feat. Well, let's but, put, you know, Dick Chapman at Wingfoot. He, uh, he's the last U.S. amateur to have won the U.S. amateur at his home club in 1940, which is almost probably impossible to have to, uh, to happen ever again. But, you know, you see his name appears uh, scattered through that same era, and it's almost like there should be an asterisk, mm-hmm. 1940 U.S. Amateur Champion. But it's everywhere, and I, and I always love seeing. I always, I always from a, a competitor's point of view, you can't help but uh, sort of admire when you see, especially when you see someone have a massive gap from, from the first to the last. And uh, we should give a shout-out to our friend uh, Andrew Warner, and his brother John, their their grandfather, uh, Milton Pierpont Warner, Pippi Warner, was like the dominant club champion at Mountain Lake forever. I mean, I think, you know, had some incredible gap from the first to the end. And I love and uh and one thing I I, I know it's sort of um it's it's very political at a lot of private clubs. Some of them have, have decided to sort of ban the juniors in the club championships where they'll only allow the junior club champion. Right. And I, here's my point of view. For those of you out there <laughs> listening, you members of the, uh, the board of governors, uh, the club champion should be the finest player in the club. And if he or she happens to be 16 or 17 years old and doesn't have a job and is playing golf all the time or 19, then you have, you still have to let them compete. Any effort to sort of, uh, eliminate the competition by some type of club decree is, is then you're, you're, you're imposing, uh, you know, uh, asterisks on the sort of the eventual club champions. If you can't handle beating an 18 year old, then you, maybe you shouldn't be the club champion. Well, the game's getting younger and younger and younger. And you see it both on the, both on the women's and the men's side. And for sure, there's, there's a lot of 16 and 17 year olds around the country that, that are, very, very capable of winning and, and have won their club championships if right. they're, if they're allowed in them. And you're right. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. Don't be so exclusionary out there. <laughs> right. Right. So they don't pay their dues. They're not dues paying members. Come on. But I, I have a, it's an interesting conversation at a lot of clubs and, uh, a club champion, if, if they're a member of the club, whether it's a family member, uh, you want to be the, if it's, you, it's shame on any club for denying the best player in the club from competing in the event. Okay, Colin, a lot of great insight there. I know you all are waiting with bated breath, waiting to listen to part two with the great Bob Toski. You're not going to want to miss out on this and future episodes with the Tosk as he affectionately is known by all of his friends. He's a 93 years young, just a wonderful, wonderful man, has given me so much personally, and he's given the golfing world all of his knowledge. So just take a listen to this great podcast and really hope you enjoy it. We never talked about the core. You know what the core is? It's what? the upper part of the body, true? Right. 
Well, uh, have you ever had, uh, have you ever eaten an apple? I have. Where's the core? In the middle. It's inside. How would you move the core in an apple? You would turn the apple, right? Right. And that would turn the core, right? Right. Is the outside moving the inside or is the inside moving the outside? <laughs> the outside should be moving the inside. Well, if you ate the apple, then you'd find the core, right? Exactly. What if you took the apple and took it straight up in the air and lifted it? Is that a swing? What is it? It's a lift. Golf is a swinging lift. Bobby Jones said you swing the club along the ground, and as it lifts, it's the cocking of the wrists and hands that lift the arms, and then the arms lower and control the hands and wrists. So it's he said, you, you swing the club low, along the ground and inside, and as your wrist cocked, it, 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 it concentrates on helping your arms up, then your arms have to help your hands down. So you have what we call a reverse C. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. No, it's not a thing so. It's a no-so. <laughs> <laughs> I... Steve Scott, I deal in fact, not supposition. <laughs> well, today, today, let me finish. Today's teaching is done by biomechanical teachers that never played on the tour, studied the anatomy, and decided there's a different way that the anatomy has to move to swing the golf club. You don't even hear of lateral force anymore. And at the point of impact, if you were to make a descending blow with an iron, what part of your body would be furthest forward at the point of impact? Probably your left knee. 90% of all my students said the left hip. Now, if the left hip was further forward than the left knee, what would happen? They'd fall what? I'd probably fall over. <laughs> fall over. <laughs> no, they would, they would fall forward. And I said, no, your left hip has turned away from the target to the left while your left knee is moving towards the target. So now you have a strong you got your leg, your lead leg, and your lead foot controlling your lead hand and your lead arm, which makes the club that create a descending, decisive blow with a lot of speed to helpfully square the club face. And that's a fact. Now, I'm watching the driving contest. You got me all started here. All right. I, I'm watching the driving contest in Las Vegas. Yes. I, I, one hour I watched all these drivers. The lady that won us from New Zealand, I think, she was the strongest, biggest of the women. And she, she drove the ball 300 and almost 40 yards and won the driving contest. Right. Now, of, of all the women that drove the ball, listen to me carefully. What do you think her left knee was at the point of impact? Straight or bent? Uh, I would have to say it would be bent a little bit. Bent a little bit. <laughs> All the other girls were straight, she was bent, and she hit, now when I'm talking about body action and control, concise, precise body action, she hit eight balls, six of the eight were in the grid, and she was the most consistent of all the players that struck the ball, because her technique was different than all the others, because her left knee was still bent at the point of impact. And today, you know who started post-up? Who? I'm going to get in trouble, Jim Hardy. Now, you don't post up. If you're going to make a descending blow, you better post down first. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you what I'll do. You you take a student and have them stand on their left leg and straighten their left leg out and tell them to make a descending blow with a, an iron club. 
And what's going to happen with their left leg straight all the way through the backswing and through swing? Are they going to make good contact with the ball? No, not at all. What's going to happen? Well, they're going to they're going to hang back. They're going to chunk it. They're going to blade no, it. They're no, gonna... they've already no, no. You you got to understand. They're already on their left leg. Okay. There's no there's no weight on the right leg. They're standing on their right toe. Well, they can't move laterally. No, like I guess they'll have to move rotary. Well, what's going to happen to the golf swing? Is he he to top it? How can he make a descending blow and make a divot like a Palmer took, which was five inches long and about two inches deep? You can only swing a golf club at a rate of speed in which the strength of your arms and hands can bear, supported by your lower body at the point of impact, not your upper body. So I defy anybody to make a golf swing with their two legs perfectly straight, two knees perfectly straight, two legs perfectly straight, and keep them straight all the way through the backswing and through swing. Am I proving a point? You are. You are. Would you would you say that that would that would be why you're seeing a lot of you're seeing a lot of injuries? There's a lot of these players, you know, with Kepka and Dustin Johnson and all these players that provide so much speed and so much stress on their body. Well, and the, the spe- more speed you have, the more stress there is in the body to control speed. The faster the club moves, the faster the body has to turn and shift to support that. So the effort of the body now is greater, right? For sure. If a car is being driven, if a car is being driven 100 miles an hour, what does the motor have to do? It has to work what? Work harder. What if it's only going 50 miles an hour? It doesn't have to work so hard. All right. If you were driving a car 100 miles an hour on the straight road and you had a fork going left to right, would you go around that corner 100 miles an hour? I'd probably slow down. <laughs> no, no, you're not answering my question. No. I guess you'd, you'd crash. What? No, the car would tip over. Right, yeah, right. You're not crashing. You didn't hit another car. There's no trees. You're out in the middle of the goddamn desert. <laughs> the car would tip over. Okay. Well, then, if you can't control speed, what do you do? You regress the progress. You learn to swing slower with more control and then build more speed. Because in driving a car, what makes the car move faster is the pistons that go up and down. The faster they go up and down, the faster the wheels can turn. So you have vertical force making rotary force move faster. This is why, Mr. Scott, I will go... On television, I will debate any teacher right now, and I think I'll win. <laughs> well, I think I... Because I, then, then, then you, all you have to do is take lead letters and put them on TV with me, and I'll ask questions, and, and they can ask questions, which I'll have all the answers, and I'll ask them questions where they may not have all the answers. How, what, am I only the living instructor in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> I, I, Think about that, Steve. <laughs> I can still talk. I can still I can still give information at ninety three. That's why I'm talking to you. The yeah, modern I, generation of teachers today are nothing but my biomechanical teachers, and they're teaching a new form of how to swing the golf club, which is creating more stress, and then you're going to have injuries. Yeah, that's uh, remember. I'm, we're seeing the, a lot of that. The fat, remember one thing, Steve. The faster you move the golf club, the more effort your body has to use. It's like the, the engine in the car. And why why can a sports car move faster than a truck? Because it's lighter. How come Bob Toski at 120 pounds became lead money winner? Because you figured out how to how to move the <laughs> move the club faster from a lighter frame. Uh, no, and 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 then control 
three factors, the swing, the turn, and the shift. And the faster I swung the club, the faster my body turned and shifted. And it, the swing has its proper time, proper order, and its proper place. So you have to have all those three correct. And to teach that and get it to become concise and precise, I find trying to control cancer because they can't apply what I teach. I had a CEO come out to Wyoming where I w- was teaching for George Starr, who owned the total number of radio and television stations under SEC regulation. Now, he has a CEO to come out, and he had all CEOs joining his club. And he said to the CEO, be careful how you talk to Mr. Petoskey, because if you say the wrong thing, he's going to nail you. <laughs> okay? So we go, out to the, we go out to the driving range, and his first question is, do you think you can teach me how to play golf? I said, sir, my problem is not how to teach people to play golf. It's they never learn how to play because they don't understand that my teaching has to be applied with three forces, vertical, lateral, and rotary. Now, you have to learn to control your body and do that. And I said, how many? I said, you're a CEO? How many people you employ? He said, 500. I said, do you play golf? Oh, once in a while. I said, what do you do? You sit behind a desk all day. And all, all you do is sign pieces of paper. You give directions to your vice president or down the line to go out and tell people that you hired how to do it right. You don't go down the line. I said, but now, instead of you telling somebody what to do, I'm telling you what to do. And he goes back after the lesson. He said, George Storr, he said, I never believe I could have a lesson like He said, why? He says, well, he kind of undressed me. I said, the quicker I undress you and the quicker I put your clothes back on, the faster you're going to learn. <laughs> Interesting way it's, to look at it. There's it's no, co- no question. It's, it's, called the, it's called the Art of Zen. <laughs> you ever watch the Art of Zen teaching? That's what they do. That's that's very cool. Now, now talking about... So, Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was gonna. I was gonna shift on to you learning a lot from Ben Hogan and seeing his no, evolution. I, didn't learn. I as... learned. Yes. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, no. I, your son? No, I, I just was gonna go and talk about your your watching Ben Hogan and watching his evolution as a player, and he let you come out and watch him practice, didn't he? I was 22 years old, and Hogan is practicing. And I watched him practice 12 times. I counted. Each time of that was for an hour. And for the 12 times that he practiced, he never said one word to me. Not one word. And I would stand to the right of him and look at his grip and his ball position and his posture and his head. I would dissect his body. Then I stood behind him to see and watch the plane of play as a swing and the delivery of the club at the ball and see if it went offline. And all his balls were going almost dead straight with a little fade. Now, I had a pair of white shoes on, and I was standing probably 10, 10 or 12 feet behind him. So I, you know how you always want to get closer? Yeah. I moved closer to him, and he saw my white shoes, and he waved his right hand. <laughs> Wait, move me. He said, right hand, move back, move back. He didn't say that. My right hand. I moved back because if I didn't, he probably wouldn't let me watch him. He saw my white shoes, 
and his peripheral vision told him he wouldn't be able to swing the club well. Well, we're in the locker room. This is the L.A. Open. His, his locker is about two lockers away from me. And we both happened to be in the locker room at the same time uh, taking our shoes off. And he looked at me and he said, Bob, you're out there a long time today. And I pointed at Ben very gently. I didn't become belligerent. I said, Ben, I was out there as long as you were. And he says, yes, you were. He said, did you learn anything? I said, Ben, every time you made a golf swing, I learned something. He said, good. Threw the shoes in the locker and walked out. Well, I, I learned from the best players on tour. Demarit said, Bob, you got a wonderful golf swing, but you hit too many bad shots. You got to hit more good shots and less bad shots. And you'll score better. But you have to learn course management. You have to learn when to give up distance for direction and learn when to change the speed of your golf swing. And he said, what's the speed of the putter compared to a driver? And I said, hell, I don't know. you got to learn to adjust. So you learn to control speed with a putter and then a chip, then a pitch, then an approach, and then a drive. Once you do that, you get from the driver to the green quicker. You can't learn to go from a driver to a putter because you'll get to the green at nine, and it's like these two players were playing, and he, he said to his friend, what you make on the hole? He said, 10. He said, you're one of <laughs> So, So you, ta- <laughs> you talk about some of these, these legends of the game, and – who are some of your other friends on the tour? And I know Sam Sneed was somebody uh, that that uh, he he developed a well, a, a de, pretty de, cool de nickname Mar- for you. Demar, Demar, uh, yeah, he called me Mousy because <laughs> I was so small and light and so fast. He says you can disappear faster than anybody I know of, and he called me Mousy. <laughs> we we played an exhibition in Kansas City, and. He was with McSpaden, who was with Nelson at the time. McSpaden got up on the first hole and Doug hooked it out of bounds. He had the worst-looking golf swing I'd ever seen. So the wind was in our face, and Sam drove the ball down the fairway. So I drove the ball down the fairway. I was the last one to hit. And I hit a low ball because it was in the wind. I played the ball almost just slightly forward of center so I could deal off the club and hit it low. So we get down to our ball, and Sam looks at my ball, and it's only about five yards behind him. He says, is that your ball, Mousy? I said, Sam, that's my ball. He said, you ought to get a two-stroke penalty for high jumping at the point of impact. <laughs> I said, Sam, I wasn't high jumping. I was on my toe. I know what a high jump is. Both your feet leave the ground. I said, you ought to try doing what I do and see how well you can control the club face. You know what he said to me? What kind of books you're reading? <laughs> I said, good ones. Good ones, Sam. He had a lot of respect to me because he didn't believe how far I could drive the ball pound for pound. I was the longest, best hitter in the world. I had 120 pounds. I drove the ball 260 to 270 yards. So how many yards per pound was I getting, Mr. Scott? So, well, over two, so two and well, a half. Well, Jack Nichols weighed 200 pounds, and he got 
two yards per pound, he'd have to hit the ball 400 yards. Right. Then who's getting more out of their body pound for pound? <laughs> you obviously are. So I must have been. I was a hell of an athlete. I played four or five sports in high school. Now, I, Demarit befriended me. He, he he adopted me like a kid in Boys Town. But you know why all the, why all the big top players tried to help me? Why? I was so small and light. They felt sorry for me. Because <laughs> I was told, I was told by a lot of people, you should have been a jockey instead of a golfer. <laughs> should have been riding a horse. But there'll never be. 120 pound man again in the history of golf that was leading money with her on a tour and won four tournaments in one year and was leading Ryder Cup point getter. That that's in itself should get me in the what? <laughs> in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> you got it. That'll never see. That'll never happen again. I know. I'm not bragging. I'm just trying to tell you facts. Right. And there's no question what about that. Okay, what is the lightest player on the tour today? The lightest player mm -hmm. on the tour today, I, I don't know. I, How much does the lightest player weigh on the tour today? Take a guess. Can't be any less than 160 pounds. Well, there, no, there, there isn't one that I knew of that was under 140. Right, no, there no way. One, 145 and up. I want to see some 120-pound guy go out there today and beat all these big, strong, dumb idiots like I did. <laughs> yeah, you played against. Saying, yep. I was I was a smarter player. They used to say, "Oh, you lucky sob if you couldn't chip and putt." I said, "No, uh, I hit more fairways than you do, probably." So I said, "The reason why I beat you is I'm smarter than you are. I know how to play golf better than you do." You may think you're stronger and better, but you can't control the ball and tee the green like I can. And that's the name of the game. Uh, you, you could there are 14 clubs in the bag. You could always you do gotta that. you got to learn how to play with 14 clubs. No question. Oh, no, today it's a, today it's a driving a wedge in the putt. <laughs> driving a wedge in the putt. Yeah, strategy Turn gets, the damn TV set on. Strategy they gets thrown right out the window, right? There you go. <laughs> There's not there much strategy. So, so talk about you, you talk about being the leading money winner on 1954, and really it was all surrounding that the the World Championships event that was by far and away the the biggest purse that you played for. Fifty thousand dollars was for the first prize, and and talk about kind of coming down to that very last hole, knowing that you needed you needed a great a great shot to end up winning this tournament and really changing the trajectory of your life at that point. Well, I have to, I have to take you back at the other five holes. I had a six shot lead and I made a triple bogey on that hole from the bunker. I told the caddy, take the flagstick out. I airmailed it over the green on the rough and made, put that on the green three putt and Burke made three where I made seven. Jack, I played with Jack Burke. Jackie Burke. Right. Yes. And at the end of 14 holes, listen to this carefully, and the audience better understand it. At the end of 14 holes, I'm three shots behind. How, how big How big, How big? big a swing was there? Nine shots. Jeez, yeah, a lot. So at the 15th hole, Burke knocks it out of bounds, over the fence, almost puts the second one out of bounds. And, and Besseling, who had 10,000 going on me if I won, said, uh, what are you going to do? I says, watch. 
I'm going to tee this thing so low it won't go high enough to go over the fence. <laughs> and I hit this, I hit this screamer down the fairway, in the middle of the fairway. I knock a three wood on the green. I hold the putt for an eagle. He makes six. I make three. There's the three so shots right tied. there, right? <laughs> now we go on the 18th hole, and he drives it to the left side of the fairway. It has a better opening to the flag because it was a big elm tree support uh, uh, blocking my shot. I had to play a eight iron and hit a cut fade around the tree. Burke puts it 40 feet from the hole. I cut this ball around the tree. And my best shot was a cut shot left to right. I cut the ball around the tree. Burke said it went through the trees. I said, Jack, that's not true. My ball went around the tree. I knocked it seven and a half feet from the hole. And he looked at my putt and said, I thought we'd have a playoff. I said, why? He said, there were spike marks, heel marks that you had to putt over. I said, I never saw those. All I saw was the break and my ball going on the hole. I didn't see what you seen. That's why I made the putt. <laughs> and, so I, and you won $50,000 for that, yeah, but, for but, that putt. Before, before that, I won 2000 $2,000, I won three tournaments for a total of $8,000. Right, wow. Ended up winning about $65,000. Signed a contract for 50 exhibitions. Did 57 exhibitions at 1000 an exhibition. So you take 57 and 68, that's a, how much over 100000 is that? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's, yeah. That, that's a lot of money in 1954. A lot of money. When they ask me that, Steve, I tell them, I'd rather win today because... If I won four tournaments today, it would be four, five, or six, seven, eight million dollars. <laughs> I'll take, I'll take 2019 out of and 1954. But I, I will never regret the 50s because I met the best players in the world, and I had more fun with Sam Hogan, Demerit, Middlecoff, Mangrum, Porky Oliver. Frank Stranahan, you name them, those were the best years of my life because I was now amongst the best, and they were my professors. They taught me how to play golf, not be a range hitter only on the driving range. Course management, learning how to play with 14 clubs, and learning how to drive the ball and then put the ball and try to knock the ball close to the hole. From the fairway. Well, what I always found amazing was back then, uh, the 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 camaraderie on the tour, and you talked about because the the money largely, you know, as compared to now, wasn't there, and so everybody kind of helped everybody stay on the tour, right? Oh, that that was it. Every 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 pro was your friend and your teacher, and the lessons didn't last very long, Steve five or ten minutes and they say that take do this do that and, and they leave and they come back a, a little later they say you're not doing what i told you i'm going to tell you one more time you're not applying what i'm teaching and they keep coming back until oh you finally got it i'll see you later <laughs> i mean could you imagine uh, that going on today uh, you know brooks no, kepka going up to tiger woods and and asking him uh, or or People giving people advice now. It just it just doesn't happen, does it? No. Uh, 
today they have a psychiatrist, they have a bodybuilder, they <laughs> they have a backswing coach, a downswing coach. Uh, <laughs> crazy. And then you got a you got a psychiatrist telling you uh, how to swing a club or what mental thoughts you got to have. And so before you know it, you're paralytic from over analysis. So what do you think? Uh, let's 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 go on that topic for a second. So what do you think about? Brooks Kepka. Now I know you've you've seen him growing up in the Lake Worth, South Florida area, uh, where you all lived, and and you probably saw him as a young man. Uh, he's he's actually one of those that kind of bucks that trend a little bit as far as the sports psychologist portion of it, at least. He's kind of that tough guy player, isn't he? Maybe a kind of a, a throwback in that respect. He believes strongly in his ability to play golf, and yeah, his father was a member of Sherbrooke, and he used to play out of Sherbrooke. And he was going to Florida State, I believe, or Florida? Yes, Florida State, yes. And the, te- the teacher up there told him that if he didn't apply his method of teaching, he might. So he comes back and he tells his father that this teacher is trying to teach him a methodology that he doesn't think is correct. So he says, his father said, Bob, would you come out to the driving range? and watch him hit some golf balls. So we go out to the driving range, and I said, Brooks, can you hit me a, can you strike me a draw? He draws the ball. I said, you you got to draw it into the target now, not away from it. I said, well, hit me a fade. In no time, he taught me how he could control the fade. And, I, and in no time was he hitting the ball straight. I said, you don't need any golf lessons. You need to go out and play golf and learn how to win because you're a three-dimensional player. And that pro, if he gives you a hard time, you tell him to call me. I'll straighten him out. Oh, he says, oh, no, I don't want to create any controversy. I said, I'd be, I would be happy to go up and talk to him personally and tell him to leave you alone because I said, I told his father, Bush, uh, Brooks is going to become a great player, and he's going to win majors faster than you think. So we played on the European tour and then came to America, and the rest is history. All right, Bob, let's cut you off right there for right now. And just a lot of wonderful insight from the legendary instructor, Bob Toski. Remember to tune into the Silver Club podcast next time. You'll hear more from Bob Toski and everybody else who makes up the fabric of this great game. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on all the media outlets. We'll catch up with you again real soon.